thank you for joining us for the June 2007 podcast of Ordinary Means. I'm your host, Sean Nolan, here sitting... We're not at a table today, so what are we going to say? We're, we're, we're snoozing s- in chairs. We're, we're snoozing in very comfortable chairs uh, here with Matt Bowling. Hi, Matt. Hi, Sean. Uh, we are the Ordinary Means Podcast, and we're here today to talk about baptism. Uh, we've spent a lot of time talking about the Lord's Supper. Uh, we've spent a lot of time talking about prayer and preaching. And as Matt and I were going over some of the, the older podcasts, we realized we really hadn't spent uh, much time on baptism. And it's an important issue. It's definitely an important issue. Uh, as any of you that are familiar with some of the uh, issues going on in the Presbyterian Church in America and in the Reformed world in general, baptism is very much an issue today uh, surrounding some of the uh, the new teachings, things like the new perspective on Paul, the federal vision, uh, sometimes known as Auburn Avenue theology. Now, we're not going to get into any of those. As, as some of you are aware, our denomination, the PCA, is uh, bringing a report on some of those issues that deals with baptism uh, at our meeting this, this very month, in June of 2007. And we are planning in our next podcast then to, to do some discussion of that. But we're gonna, we're gonna hold that off. What we wanna do today is we wanna go back just to the very, uh, the very basics of what does baptism mean? What is a scriptural, what is a biblical view of baptism? Because what we often find is uh, that these other Reformed views are, are looking for uh, all the, the, the depth and the breadth and what is happening spiritually in something that is, in many ways, a mystery. Uh, they're looking for that, and oftentimes what happens is we lose sight of what common sense tells us, is of what the scriptures demonstrate baptism to be. And so that's that's where we want to start today. What is a biblical view of baptism on the on the most foundational level? What are what do we expect from baptism? What is it? What does it mean? Uh, those are the kinds of things that uh, Matt and I are going to talk about here this afternoon. And so maybe we need to begin that by asking the question uh, where do we find baptism in the scripture, Matt? You want to? Yeah, I mean, baptisms. It, it uh, well, the first thing is it's not just a new thing. It's not simply a a, a new covenant reality. Um, there were, uh, I mean, the earliest forms, although it doesn't necessarily go under this name. Although I don't have a Septuagint in front of me to know whether how this word's used. Maybe Jean can search it. He's got his computer next to him. Whether the verbs, the New Testament verbs, are used, the Greek verbs are used in the Septuagint. But there are washings. I, actually, I, I can talk oh, to that. that? Is okay, that go ahead. In in the Old Testament, uh, in almost all cases, the, the cleansing is uh, the word is uh, the verb used is ba- is bapto. Okay. So there so is related. there is that same, connection linguistically. Any time in the Old Testament you have a uh, a dipping of a vessel in in a bowl of water, a dipping of uh, the priest's finger, uh, they would put oil in the palm of the hand, then they would dip the finger into the oil and then sprinkle That's something. Uh, Any time they would dip the hyssop. Uh, all of those things are bapto. Yes, yeah, so there bapto. is a linguistic okay. connection with the cleansings of the Old Testament, which which is vital for understanding New Testament baptism or, or New Covenant baptism. New Covenant baptism, yeah. So I think that the, the origin of the ideas is not something that's exclusively the domain of New Testament thinking. Something that's a that's a carryover. The concept of a liquid substance being used to symbolize something is something that God's been doing for a long time, from uh, the blood that's sprinkled on the horns of the altar to the hyssop that's sprinkled on the people. Um, you know, so there's there's uh, the hyssop that's used to uh, to sprinkle the people on the Day of Atonement that we see in the Old Testament. And so the concept of a washing with spiritual significance is not uh, exclusively the domain of the New Testament. We do see a lot of it, though. We see, obviously, um, I'm in... Uh, Near to the end of Mark's gospel than the beginning right now in my preaching, and and we've just been reviewing John and the work that he did because Jesus hangs his authority with John, and what John is known for, of course, everybody knows him by John the Baptist. That's what he was known for, not and, John the Congregationalist, uh, no, and not, not John, John the Presbyterian, Presbyterian but John, John the, the Baptist. Baptist. And so this this baptism that John called the people for. So this is, if you're uh, familiar with this, in the early part of the gospel accounts, 
the Holy Spirit fell on Israel and brought a revival through the preaching ministry of John the Baptist, who preached, repent, the kingdom of heaven is near, and who pointed forward to Christ. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets. But the the sign that God used uh, to signify the forgiveness of sins that came to people as they looked forward to Jesus repenting of their sins was that baptism of John uh, in the Jordan River. And it's important to note that the people coming to John for baptism uh, were not completely unfamiliar then uh, with the idea of a baptism, of a cleansing uh, ritual. It is important to note that the the baptism they were most familiar with you remember John baptizing at the Jordan, who was coming to him, the Jews. Jews. From in and around Jerusalem, even even the Pharisees were coming, and John had a few words for the Pharisees who were coming. Uh, well, they were coming to critique. They weren't coming to get baptized. We, he, he said, uh, John says to him, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come, you brood of vipers? Uh, so th- there is a sense in which they were coming and maybe perhaps even saying, will you baptize me? Um, but John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. It was a baptism uh, signifying their desire to be clean before God. But it had its root in an Old Testament ceremony, uh, which is what we understand as proselyte baptism. And what proselyte baptism was, was that at um, whenever there was a Gentile, that is somebody, who, a non-Jew, uh, who wanted to worship God in under the Old Covenant, uh, came and had to become a Jew. So they would undergo circumcision, but they would also undergo a baptism. It was called proselyte baptism. And that was essentially a, a cleansing ritual. Uh, this person has been a rich, this person has been a, um, a Gentile. They've been unclean. Uh, they've been outside of God's people. And so in coming in, they need a, a cleansing. Is this something we just read about historically? Or is this something that, that we could point people to a text? I'm not thinking of a text off the top of my mind. This is something that is uh, that is historically by the time of Jesus. It's, okay. it's intertestamental. It's intertestamental. It's okay. begun to take uh, take on this uh, this aspect. Uh, however, for them, it was rooted in in the cleansing rituals of the Old Testament. For example, if a Jew had been in the marketplace. Right. Before they could eat, not only did they have to cleanse their hands, which was normal for a Jew before they ate, but they also had to cleanse uh, themselves in some way. From the defilement. Uh, from the defilement. Of yeah, I mean, you can go in Leviticus, and, and the concept there always is that, you know, when something gets defiled, it has to go through a process of getting undefiled, of being, and this is important for what where we're going to end up in terms of what uh, new. New Testament Trinitarian baptism is that we do today, there's always an aspect in baptism of setting apart, of being set apart to something, from something to something. And this proselyte baptism is from the pagan, the world of paganism to the world of the covenant people of God. It's the entrance uh, door, if you will, into the covenant community. Um, in the way that the circumcision served for the kids and as well as baptism does for our kids and for new believers today. Well, as you begin to look at the baptisms that we have in the New Testament, beginning with John's baptism, you see how in the providence of God, proselyte baptism was a transition into John's baptism. And the significant thing then, if we understand proselyte baptism is to be a Gentile uh, becoming a Jew, in order to worship God, a God-fearing Gentile. The, the vital thing to see there, and I think it's R.C. Sproul who first brought this to my attention, is that he, he points out the fact that a Jew then coming to John was effectively saying, I must become a Gentile before I can become a Christian. That I must acknowledge that I, in my heart, am as guilty as a Gentile, Hmm. which is a profound, profoundly striking thing for a Jew who considers their father to be Abraham, who has been a part genealogically of the people of God for so long, for a Jew to have to say, I am a guilty sinner before God. What was a very was a very powerful and a very humbling and a very significant thing. Uh, basically, 
taking basically with the coming of John, everybody went back to square one. Hmm. Now, in saying that, we still agree that the the gospel was first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Right. Jesus came to the Jews. And then the door was opened up to the Gentiles to come in. But still, and it's that same tree, Romans uh, Romans 6, it's that tree in which the the unbelieving Jews are broken off and the believing Gentiles 11. are grafted in. Romans 11. Uh, Romans 11 uh, and the believing Gentiles are grafted in. Right. So it's, it's one body, but essentially John's baptism, he was coming in and saying, you're not clean enough. Just being a Jew, and that's why his words for the Pharisees were so strong. They weren't coming in repentance. No. Yeah. No, they were coming in their Judaism. Right. In right. in their genealogy, in their genetics, in their trust, in their DNA, uh, to make them Abraham's children. Well, and that's I think that's really significant that the statement that's being made in baptism is not uh, this person is clean. The statement that's being made is this person we'll put it in Pittsburghese for you who are outside of our general area. Uh, this person needs cleaned. They need to be cleaned. This isn't how they get clean. This is their statement that they need to be purified. One of the major images we're going to look at in terms of what, what does baptism mean? New Testament Trinitarian baptism. Yeah. When you come for baptism, you are announcing that you're dirty. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's why they went to go see John. That's why, as much as it's misunderstood sometimes by people who come from perhaps a more uh, Roman Catholic background into a Presbyterian church and see us baptize uh, a kid, is, you know, in a Roman Catholic understanding, in a sense, that your child saved, the original sins washed away. And they hear what the parents admit of their child at, in one of our baptisms, and they go, and it's confusing to them, because we're stating the very opposite thing. This is a symbol that shows your kid needs to be saved. <laughs> yes, one of the one of the vows that the parents take or do is do you uh, do you trust in uh, the cleansing of Jesus Christ that your child needs Jesus Christ is your only hope and yeah is your only hope just as just as you do right you know I, right. we we confess that baptism. And we'll, we'll go into, we'll talk about in a future podcast, we'll talk about the issues of Baptist uh, believers' baptism versus uh, infant baptism, uh, which by the way, Presbyterians believe in both. We believe in both infant baptism and uh, believers' baptism. However, we, we don't believe that infant baptism in any way saves a child. Right. And I think that's, that's key in understanding. In the same way, we don't believe that believers' baptism saves, anybody. saves an adult. It's a statement of their sinfulness. It's a statement of their sinfulness. And just as there are adults who make a credible profession of faith but are not believers and yet receive baptism because to the outward eye at the moment they appear to be believers same uh, it's it's the same situation uh, with the child we're simply ushering that child into God's people and uh, and from there trusting that the Lord is going to work and that if he doesn't that child will ultimately leave the church uh, and that their baptism where well, this is this is Meredith Klein's language which I think is good that uh, at this our baptism point, it's at this point, it's very helpful, is that baptism is uh, the washing of water, uh, but for the person who doesn't believe, it's a sign of our drowning in judgment. Cuts both ways. It cuts both ways, exactly. Now, moving on from John's baptism, I, th I think what we fail to miss is that in the New Testament, there are actually three baptisms going on. Mm -hmm. uh, first, you have um, John's baptism beginning of the Gospels. Then you have a baptism that Jesus' disciples do, uh, not Jesus himself. Uh, this is John chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 refers to this, uh, where Jesus' disciples are baptizing, and then it says, but Jesus himself did not baptize anyone. Uh, that's happening after the baptism of John, and yet prior to the death and resurrection of Christ. Uh, reading in the beginning of, of the book of Matthew, what you'll find is that as soon as John is arrested, as soon as John's ministry comes to a, begins to come to a close, it's at that point that Matthew writes, uh, knowing that, having found out that John had been arrested, 
Jesus then went to Galilee, and it's at that point Jesus begins to call his disciples. So there's a definite transition that's taking place there. However, the baptism now that Jesus begins to do, or that his disciples begin to do in his, uh, in his name, is more, is more closely associated to John's baptism then the baptism that then when we come to Matthew 28, Jesus has been risen from the dead. Uh, we understand baptism. We understand the disciples now understand why Jesus came. They understand that he had to die and now he's been risen from the dead. It's only then that we get the baptism that we understand, which is where Jesus says, now go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Up to this point, we have not had a triune baptism. Up to this point, baptism in Scripture has, has or in the New Testament rather, has been a baptism of repentance, uh, simply a, a, a transitional phase. Uh, in fact, in the book of Acts, I don't have the reference here with me. Maybe, Matt, you remember this. In the book of Acts, uh, the apostles come upon four uh, disciples of John, and uh, they ask them, have you yet received the Holy Spirit? And their answer is, uh, no, we only received the baptism of John. And it's at that point that they're baptized again. Mm -hmm. So there's a clear distinction then between this baptism of repentance and the actual baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, which Jesus commands in Matthew 28. Uh, now, what exactly, how that transition takes place is not always clear. Uh, but there is an obvious transition, such such that anyone that was baptized prior to Matthew 28 uh, receives a new baptism. It's a different baptism. It's a baptism in the Spirit. Uh, obviously, the Spirit doesn't come in fullness until Pentecost. Uh, it's at Pentecost that the Spirit descends in uh, miniature glory clouds, the way that the Spirit of God descended in the Old Testament upon the tabernacle, upon the temple. Uh, but now God descends at Pentecost, God descends upon the individual believers in these tongues of fire, saying that God's glory rests with each believer. So they are marked, uh, they are set apart, as Matt was talking about just a little bit ago. It's at that point that they're marked and they're set apart by the Spirit, which of course reminds us of what John said, I baptize you with water, but he, meaning Jesus, will baptize you with the Spirit and with fire, a reference uh, to the coming of Pentecost and the baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, that's a, that's a lot to think about. There's is, uh, obviously a lot mysterious happening there. The scene you were thinking about was Acts 19, where they yes. go to Corinth. And, uh, and I'm sorry, they go to, to Ephesus, and they find some disciples there, and he asks them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Which is interesting for all the dialogue that goes on regarding Acts and that uh, receiving the Holy Spirit is a post-conversion experience usually. And uh, which I think that, uh, that Paul here is recognizing that it was abnormal. It was a transitional, as the baptism thing was. It was transitional for the Holy Spirit to be received at a different time than baptism. Well, understanding, but says, understanding that the... There is a clear distinction in the scripture between John's baptism and Jesus' baptism. Yes, yes. We're not talking about a second baptism here. This can't be a second blessing. Right. This is simply, they received a transitional type of baptism, but now they are being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Paul asked them, um, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Again, the into. Paul said, John's baptism was the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Which is shorthand. You know, of course, some people are going to say, uh, we've got some around here, one of the Pentecostals, that the, the only name you should be baptized into is just Jesus. But Jesus makes very clear in Matthew 28 that where Paul here is talking about baptizing into the name of, of Jesus, that uh, there was no name associated with the baptism that John or the disciples did. But their people are now baptized into the name. They're identified with the very name of God um, in their baptism. Which is a great transition into what we want to talk about next, which is what is the point of baptism? And much of the point of baptism is found in that word into. Mm -hmm. 
uh, the let me pull it up here the uh, Confession of Faith. Uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, here's the Shorter Catechism. Shorter Catechism, question 94, defines baptism this way. It says that baptism is a sacrament wherein the washing with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost doth signify and seal, and here's the key phrase here, our ingrafting into Christ and partaking of the benefits of the covenant of grace and our engagement to be the Lord's. And maybe we could take those uh, three phrases there together. We've talked about the washing of water. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's clearly, there's a purification element to this. For sure. We're dirty. We're sinners. And so when we come for baptism, we're, we're, we're announcing that. Uh, you know, when you make a public proclamation of something, you generally want it to be a good thing. You want to make, you you know, we we announce good news. <laughs> right. You know, you gather the family around the table. Oh, everybody, I have good news for you. We're going to Disneyland. But baptism has carries with it a significance of you are making a public proclamation of your sinfulness. Mm-hmm. That are you are dirty, you are filthy, you are unclean before the Lord. And that the only way that you are clean is because of your identification with Jesus Christ, who is your righteousness, who is your cleanliness, who is your perfection. And and that's absolutely vital to our understanding of baptism. Uh, as Matt said earlier, it's, it's a cutting off in the same way that circumcision was a cutting off of yourself to the people of God. So to baptism, or a threat that you will be cut off from the people of God if you do not if, if you, you do, do not continue in faithfulness, right? Uh, in the same way, baptism is you are being you are setting yourself apart. It's the initiation rite uh, which the confession gets at. Um, it's the the initiation of our engrafting into Christ. Uh, we are beginning a journey here. The confession uses the language of it's our engagement to be the Lord's. You know, engagement is the beginning of a marriage. And in the same way that engagement is the beginning of a marriage, baptism is the beginning of a journey. Uh, Baptism does not uh, clean you. Baptism does not uh, affect all the things that it signifies. It can't. It's a sacrament. It speaks the reality of them. It... it, uh makes visible the way I talk about it in doing baptisms it makes the gospel visible it's it's visible preaching of the gospel it's not getting something done as much as it's god speaking it's the same way in the lord's supper there's a, there's a piece of bread and there's a little cup of wine and we eat it and we drink it and we have a, a tangible means of celebrating the lord and remembering our savior and as we take hold of those things by faith uh, our faith is is built up, right? And God ministers to us, absolutely. In the same way, baptism—the the mere outward putting of water on something—you know, I, I take the hose to my car occasionally, right? But that doesn't affect anything. We, the way I'll often, uh, the analogy I'll often use is, um, is the analogy of a sign. If you have a sign that says twenty miles to Pittsburgh, now that sign tells you how to get to Pittsburgh. But that sign can't get you to Pittsburgh. Right. There has to be, there has to be a car in the mix. There has to be some motion. There, there has to be some process. There has to be an actuality of you being carried from point A to point B. Now that's all going on by the work of Christ through His Spirit in your sanctification. Baptism is your engagement. Right. Baptism is your introduction into the covenant community. Baptism it's the is entry point. It's the entry point. The initiation. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's where you publicly make a vow, uniting yourself to this body of believers. It's essentially the first step of membership. Yep. Uh, because we don't understand being united to Christ without being a member of His body. Right. And that has, uh, we'll talk about this in a little bit, that has uh, local implications. It has implications for the local church. Right. That when you are baptized, you're not merely baptized into this generic Christianity that's out there, but you're baptized into membership in Christ that has its expression uh, 
in uh, this local body of believers. Uh, Matt, you want to say any more about union with Christ? Well, I think that union with Christ sometimes has been spoken about a couple of different ways. Sometimes union with Christ is used as sort of a shorthand of all of the benefits that flow from someone having trusted Christ, that they're justified, they're sanctified, they're adopted, they'll be glorified. And that these are all could be thought of through the lens of union with Christ. Uh, other people have said that union with Christ is it, it more ought to be thought about in a, in a logical step um, in, in terms of what theologians call the order of salvation, where, um, you know, that, that just as um, biblically regeneration has got to be prior to faith. Um, that that I don't turn in faith because it's it's all gobbledygook to me until, unless the Spirit opens my heart like he does Lydia's in Acts 16. The Lord opens her heart and she responds to the Word. That's how it works with all of us. So the Lord uh, opens your heart so you can see that you're a sinner, that you need Christ, and so you turn to Christ and you exercise faith, you turn in repentance, you trust in Christ alone. And it, it if you think of it in the the how that works out, it's at the point that you trust in Christ that you unite yourself to him. And your baptism is the sign as an adult convert of your uniting yourself to Christ by faith. Um, so I, I, union with Christ, you know, it's thought about in those two ways, either as describing all of those different events from justification onwards, that they're all aspects of union with Christ. Um, I think it, as I think about it now in light of current controversies, I think it's better to keep it more restricted and narrow as that thing that happens when I put my trust and my faith in Christ is that I'm united to him. I'm united to his perfect life, which is credited to me and my rotten life goes away because it died on the cross with him. And so I'm united to Christ's death and to his life because that's what I need. You could use the analogy, uh, the analogy of membership. Mm-hmm. with tie it to union with Christ. For example, if I were to open up my wallet right now, I have a AAA card. I'm continuing this car analogy from, from earlier. Uh, I have a AAA card. If you got some card. cash, feel free. You know, yeah. I, mean. <laughs> I, I, have a, I have this AAA card, and this AAA card identifies me as united to the Automobile Club of America. Okay? That or the Automobile, Automobile Association of America. Okay, that card is like my baptism. It's my outward identification. It's my ID card that I am united to this group. Uh, if I don't have a AAA card, nobody's going to believe that I'm a member of AAA. If I call, if my car breaks down on the side of the road and I call up the tow truck and I go, yes, I'm a member of AAA, he'll say, can I see your card or can I see the sticker on your window? And if I don't have the sticker on my window, if I don't have the card, I have not been united in membership to that group. And so what union with Christ is, is it's our identification with, our joining of the body of Christ. It's our coming into that first, like going back to the engagement analogy, it's our becoming engaged to, which obviously Christ to Christ and his body, which obviously in scriptural understanding, engagement is much more than what we see it today. Right. Uh, this is engagement in the sense of Mary and Joseph, who Joseph sought to divorce binding her obligation. privately. Yeah. This is a binding obligation. I'm now engaged to be the Lord's, and on that last day, I will be join the Lord at the marriage feast, in which I, as a part of the bride of Christ, will be finally and completely married. We, we probably to my do. Lord. You want to try and move towards talking about visible church and visible church because we're just yeah, about I, there. I think we. I think we need to because that. That distinction between the visible and invisible plays so much into what we're talking about when we talk about baptism. Baptism, my going up and joining the church by having water put on me, we'll we'll talk about the mode some other time, uh, whether it's sprinkling or pouring or immersion or... Uh, whatever. I know that hyssop speaks pretty loudly to me, Sean. Hyssop does speak pretty loudly. It was was sprinkled. Um, But at when we go and we receive, we become a Christian, uh, we've been converted, we've put our faith in Christ, we come and we receive baptism. We've repented and believed. We come and receive baptism. Okay, We are now identifying with the Church of Christ. But that has implications, both, as we mentioned before, locally and uh, more generally, 
uh, we can understand our identification then as part of my local body of believers, of the church that I'm here being baptized in. The local church. The local church. But also of the church uh, universal, all who believe in Jesus Christ, who are living and, and dead and will yet believe. We are being baptized into that body as well. And so both of those things have huge implications. Yeah, I think that it, what's important is that it... And again, being Presbyterians, we see a, a fair amount of continuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant in that a Jew could be circumcised and be a part of that covenant community and yet not be an authentic truster in Yahweh. And so there is very clearly in the Old Testament and, and in the New Testament um, – it's very clear that people who've received the sign of the covenant, circumcision in the Old Testament, baptism in the New Testament, that there's no guarantee because the sign is on them that they're an, an authentic believer. And so the way that has been come to, to expression, uh, as people have taught it over the years, is a distinction between the invisible church and the visible church. And so the the visible church is uh, what we're able to see with the with the eye of man. Uh, as Presbyterians, we would identify the visible church as the professing baptized believers who meet in one place are gathered in one body and their children who are baptized. That's the visible church. If we were to look at the 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 uh, the people who gather here regularly at Viewcrest Presbyterian Church where we record this podcast, the visible church as we know it here is the people who show uh, on Sunday. But the visible church here on Sunday um, is not necessarily parallel with how God sees things. For he knows who are hypocrites, who are false professors, uh, who are um, perhaps they're not baptized yet. And yet he has worked in them by his, by his spirit and they're members of the invisible church, but not yet the visible church. And so they're not exactly parallel. Obviously, in the ideal world, they would be, but we don't have that kind of spiritual insight to, to make them that way. Um, and, and the church is to be a, an, an incubator for spiritual babies. Uh, that's the point of children growing up, seeing other children's baptisms. It's gospel preaching to them. When we're able to lean over to our child and say, did you hear what he just said? What those parents just said about their child? That their child needs Jesus Christ? That's the same words that mommy and daddy said about you. And so the church as a visible body is a place of special obligation. Um, it's, a, it's a place we'll talk about what our experience ought to be. Our experiential religion regarding baptism towards the end here, because I think this is something that's very much lost today, is that baptism seems to have little relevance to people other than you, you take cute pictures of it because the, the little girl's in a nice baptism dress or the little boy's in nice white clothes. or You know what I mean? It's, that it, it seems to have a warm fuzzy, but not a spiritual impact necessarily on the people that are gathered when God's designed it to be that way. Well, which is, I think, one of the reasons that we're having these... Uh, diverse uh, views that are uh, being sure. raised up is because they're looking for greater meaning, greater understanding of baptism. Absolutely. Now, I, w I would say they're going to an extreme in doing that, but that is, but that is generally, historically, that's the process is when we, when we fall back in an area, somebody else is going to respond and swing the pendulum all the way the other direction. Right. And what we learn from that pendulum swing, you know, I, I can't remember who said this, but all theology is reaction. Right. Uh, so theology, what we're having now, what we're seeing a resurgence of in our day is, is a, is coming back to baptism and saying, what a wonderful thing baptism is. Look at all the spiritual significance of baptism. And so we're swinging to this, uh, to this end of the spectrum where the, there are these groups out there that are saying that when any person is, is baptized into the church, they are to be considered elect, justified, uh, a Christian, believing, and, and there's not to be, ever to be any question. Whereas, the answer really is in the middle. In the New Testament, what we find is we do find that when the Apostle Paul talks about the church, 
talks about those who have been baptized. Right. He uses general language, calling them all believers and talking about how... This would be him addressing a visible church. Addressing the visible church. But at the same time, there are several places in the New Testament where the apostles say, but examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. You know, prove your faith. Uh, The book of 1 John is all about examining yourself to see, do I really love the brethren? I'm a, I'm a baptized member of the church. But, but do I show the marks of an inward of, work of the Holy of Spirit? a true believer. Yeah. Fascinating thing. I was just uh, listening to an audio book of Richard Baxter's The Reformed Pastor, uh, which by that he means not a pastor who is holds to Reformed theology, but a pastor who is renewed in his heart and in his spirit and in his faith. And one of the things he spends a lot of time talking about early in that book, in chapter 2 of The Reformed Pastor, is he talks about the unconverted pastor. Hmm. And that there are a lot of them out there. Hmm. There are a lot of pastors out there who really, if they were to step back and look at what they're trusting in, they're trusting in the fruit that they're seeing in the church. They see this person growing or that person growing, and so they assume, oh, I must be a believer because God is giving me a God's fruitful using me. Right. ministry. And the point that Richard Baxter brings out is, well, yes, but God uses mules. <laughs> so the, the fact is that the, God is always at work. And people preaching the gospel suffer, so right? Philippians 1. Exactly. Yeah. God works through nonbelievers. Right. To the uh, Romans 8.28, God works through all things right. for the good of those, those who love him. Yeah, yeah. But what Richard Baxter calls the pastor back to is to a love of Christ hmm. and to coming back to those first things and examining those things that your baptism signifies. See, I think that's part of the danger of some of these new views is they go beyond the baptism being they go beyond baptism simply signifying these things to baptism actually being the sign that these things have happened. Or that to, the Spirit is there with the sign as it's applied. It's nuanced. It's not exactly a yeah, Roman they're Catholic not teaching, position. They're not teaching a pure Roman Catholic like, view. Right. But they're saying that always the Spirit is doing that work when the sign is applied. That's much closer to a Lutheran view, actually. Um, but it 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 uh, but that's not the point that 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 we find in the New Testament. We find that the, that the New Testament talks about baptism as its entrance into the visible church. That it is the statement that the person needs uh, the inward work of the Holy Spirit to change them. It's not a statement that that work has been done or that it's being done, but that it needs to be done. It could have been done in the past. But baptism is a statement, it's a sign of the fact that this person's broken and that they need to come to Christ. That's why we put it on infants, is it's not a sign saying, I believe in Christ. It's a sign saying, uh, you, everyone needs to believe in Christ because everyone's a sinner, including me. And that's why I feel very comfortable putting the sign on a baby, because I mean, it's, it's the same thing as if I were to put it on Sean, if he was an unbeliever, because it's a sign you need to be washed in the blood of Christ. But the, dis- this is true the distinction that needs to be made there, though, is you, you wouldn't just baptize an unbeliever in the hope that they become a Christian. No, absolutely not. The reason we would baptize an infant is the same reason that Abraham circumcised his infants, is because the infant of a believer is is part of the church. Even even uh, if you're listening to this and you come from a, a, a Baptist background, uh, you understand that your church treats the children of believers as members of the church. You teach that child to pray. You teach that child to worship God. You teach that child from a very young age to love the Lord Jesus Christ and to trust in him as your Savior. You're, you're not... Uh, everybody understands implicitly that a child of a believer is a member of the church simply by virtue of being born to believers. At the same time, everybody understands implicitly that that child is not necessarily a believer because they have been born to believers. Right. Because we all know that unless a man is born again, John 3, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so we look to Christ 
And what baptism is doing, and this really takes us to the last point that we wanted to make uh, here this afternoon, is that baptism is not about baptism. Baptism is about what Jesus has done. And that's what makes it a sacrament. When we come to the Lord's table, it's very clear. This is my body. This is my blood. When we come to baptism, it's not always as clear, but it needs to be. This is me being cleansed by the blood of Christ. And it's not, uh, I think this was the most clarity for my wife because both of us had, um, well, I had been taught infant baptism from when I first had become a Christian, but my wife had, had uh, her early years of discipleship were in more of a, a Baptist um, a Baptist persuasion. And uh, Harry Reader, if you struggle with, with just the whole idea of covenant baptism and the idea of it, Harry Reader has a video series that I would really recommend. It's been of great use to folks. You can just look on the internet for it. I'm not going to remember who publishes it. But Harry Reader has a, um, a two or three message series on covenant baptism that's exceptionally well done. It's very well done. There are other folks that have it. I just know Harry's and it's quite good. But the big difference, I think, for, for my wife in coming to this is, is figuring out in baptism who's speaking. Is it the person being baptized who's speaking, or is it God who's speaking? And if it's God who's speaking, what's he saying? He's saying, this is what my son is about. My son came to take the flood of judgment that helpless sinners like this person who's getting this water on them deserve. That's what God's saying. He's saying, if you trust in my son, then your sins will be washed away. You'll be purified from your sins. If you trust in my son, if you unite myself yourself to him, then I won't see your sins. They will be gone, washed away, and in their place, there will be clean, there will be righteousness as you trust in the righteousness of my son. It's a promise. It's God speaking a promise to those who trust in Christ. The next question then becomes, how do we profit? How does that baptism uh, continue on? I, it's, it's an interesting thing. You don't see, uh, particularly in a lot of uh, evangelical Reformed churches, uh, in the U.S. today, uh, it seems like we're not seeing a lot of converts. We're not seeing a lot of new believers coming to the faith, and therefore, we're not seeing a lot of baptism. Right. It, it depends where you are. There's a church that we attend when we're visiting family in Idaho that every time I've attended the church, there's been a baptism. Of a new, of a new, new believer. Of a new believer. Now, it's a large church. It's a mega church. They're, God is using them. It's wonderful. Um, and they are frequently baptizing people. And it's great. It was really neat to have a baptism. They also celebrate the Lord's Supper every week, which is kind of neat. And it's, it's great. It's more than neat. It's wonderful. Um, but it's really an experience to go there and expect a baptism because the Lord's using them. It's a, it's a neat and, and a wonderful thing. And and uh, anyhow, go ahead. Well, the the question is, how do we profit? Uh if I'm not the one being baptized, does this mean anything to me? Um, that's a rhetorical question. Yes, obviously it does. It's a sacrament. And the same way the Lord's Supper means something to you every time you take it, baptism is is a renewal of your, of your vows. As that person is taking vows, you are being reminded. As you see that person being cleansed, uh, you are being reminded uh, that you too have been cleansed. And that if you are trusting by faith in this Savior, Jesus Christ, then this baptism is uh, for you a sacrament, is for you, by faith, taking hold of what you're seeing here with your eyes. In the Lord's Supper, you, you taste with your mouth, you smell with your nose here, the baptism, you're seeing it with your eyes. Uh, these are tangible signs of what we have in Christ. And that's why the sacraments would be such regular parts of uh, of our church service, because we, we are to profit from them. They are to be a part of our growing and walking with the Lord. Um, the Westminster Larger Catechism, as uh, our seminary president, Bob Godfrey, put it, probably the finest exposition of Reformed doctrine, the most full expression of it, and the most neglected uh, for our benefit, 
Um, the larger catechism, Westminster Larger Catechism, uh, asks in question 167, how is baptism to be improved by us? Now, the Puritan language here of improve, uh, when somebody comes up and says, I'd really like to improve your sermon, <laughs> typically what we understand by that is you messed it up. Let me tell you how it should have been done. But when the Puritans use the word improve, um, whether related to a sermon or related to baptism, what their idea was is uh, of what Sean's been saying. How, how can it be profitable to us? How can it be an improvement to our own spirituality when someone is baptized? Let me just read the answer and I'll make a few comments. The needful but much neglected duty of improving our baptism is to be performed by us all our life long, especially in the time of temptation. Well, I'll read the whole thing, then I'll come back. And when we are present at the administration of it to others, by serious and thankful consideration of the nature of it and of the ends for which Christ instituted it, and of and the privileges and benefits conferred and sealed thereby, and our solemn vow made therein, by being humbled for our sinful defilement, our falling short of and walking contrary to the grace of baptism and our engagements, by growing up to assurance of pardon of sin and of all other blessings sealed to us in that sacrament, by drawing strength from the death and resurrection of Christ into whom we are baptized for the mortifying of sin and quickening of grace, and by endeavoring to live a life by faith, to have our conversation in holiness and righteousness, as those that have therein given up their names to Christ, there's that set apart, and to walk in brotherly love as being baptized by the same Spirit into one body. Yeah, you see what they've done there is they've taken baptism, simply the act of observing a baptism, and said, look at all you can gain from this. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, um, it's interesting. I'll just pick a couple of things here. One of the things that has uh, become a hallmark in some of the circles that Sean and I run in, um, in the PCA and in some other denominations. We do often run in circles, We do run we? in circles, yes. Is uh, an emphasis on a ministry that's centered around the gospel uh, that, that we see, as the apostles did, um, that that all doctrine should be related to the gospel. It flows from the gospel. There are applications of the gospel, but we never get past the gospel. Our goal is to form our people through the gospel. That's what the writers of this catechism saw about baptism and the Lord's Supper, is they saw that this was, this was part of our gospel formation. This was God trying to show us what the gospel's all about, that when we doubt whether our sins have been forgiven— that when we reflect on our own baptism or our children's baptisms or we see a baptism and we see the water wash away, that God is there trying to convince us as we're trusting in Christ that our sins are washed away. He's trying to convince us if we have become complacent and we become uh, have a hypocritical spirit. He's trying to remind us, look, buddy, you're a sinner. Just like this one who's getting baptized is. And so here in this, we have so many of the truths of the Christian faith, the basics of the gospel brought together. And that's its design by God for us, that he might speak the gospel to us and that we might anew embrace Christ, renew our covenant with him uh, and benefit from it. That's that's what a baptism is supposed to do for you. You know, Matt, I'm, I'm reminded that that what you've just said is is exactly why we're doing this podcast huh. is because we we want you the listener uh, to begin to benefit anew from things that have probably become ordinary to you <laughs> uh, we want you to see uh, new life and to reconsider the things you see all the time or hopefully you see all the time uh, the things you participate in the the, the aspects of worship that so easily become uh, cold and old and rote, that you would find new life in those things because those are the ways that God has promised he will work. Those are the things that God has said he will do. I forget uh, the arguments about should we have drama and dance in the worship service. Here are things that God has commanded as part of our worship. And we'd like you as the as as a believer in Christ to think again about all the wonderful ways God has given us to worship him mm. those things that the the confession calls the ordinary means and and our hope and our our prayer is that by you know us 
jabbering on for a few minutes every month uh, would help you to think again and begin to think more deeply, go and pursue some of these resources that uh, we point you to on the blog and that you would begin to say, you know what, there's so much more here that I've been missing. Hmm. And it's all here because of what Christ has done. And so if we can point you back to Christ through his ordinary means, well, we've done our job. We've we've done our job. We've done our job. You know, I had a unique experience, Sean. I was involved in the ordination of a a new young man uh, just coming into the ministry this past Sunday. And um, I'm not sure if it's just that I'm just passing the five-year mark of being ordained this month. And um, and I just was, was very reflective. I was he was taking his vows about the vows that I had taken five years ago. And I think that even this catechism question, I think in a baptism that that we're sent back by God to our engagement vow, to what we said. You know, even as couples on their twenty fifth anniversary or their fortieth or their fiftieth anniversary, take their vows again. That we are, by God's grace, by the power of the Spirit, in baptism to take our vows again. Not to resolve to work harder, but to throw ourselves anew in desperation on Christ and, and uh, to, demonst- to, to speak again just how much we need the Spirit to work in us that we might uh, perfect holiness in the fear of God. Amen. Amen. Well, on that note, we will leave you this afternoon. We trust that the Lord will richly bless you as you pursue him through his ordinary means. 